Hi, I'm journalist Mara Schiavocampo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. This week on Run Tell This, we're joined by a very special guest co-host, award-winning documentarian, journalist, and CEO of Soledad O'Brien Productions, the one and only Soledad O'Brien. We're giving our hot take on the very first presidential debate, which I think we can all agree was a complete and total shit show. What were the lowest moments, because there were no highs, how did Chris Wallace do as moderator, and more. Run Tell This starts now. So there's a reason that I don't watch reality TV. And the reason I don't watch reality TV is because it makes me anxious to see people fight. I can feel my heart rate going up. I can feel my face getting hot. And that's how I feel right now. I was taking notes. And at one point, I just wrote down, what a shit show. It was just a disgraceful shit show. So Soledad, you are our guest. We're so grateful to have you here with us tonight. What, what's your hot take on what we just saw? Ugh, I don't know that I have any hot takes because that was just a messy hour and a half of my life I'll never get back. And I don't think it was illuminating. I hate the way that politics is framed. Even I was watching it on ABC, right? And it's framed as the main event and it's going to be a boxing match. And I hate that framing. I would really like each person to have an actual reasonable amount of time to lay out what they need to lay out for the American people. And so I, I hated the format. I thought Chris Wallace, who I'm often very complimentary of actually, I thought he was awful. I thought he could not control uh, the candidates. I thought he was getting run over. He was basically begging for people to pay attention to him. And the format was just awful. And he didn't stick to any of the rules as much as he tried to. He just couldn't really make it happen. So it was, it was a shit show. And everybody, while you were thinking shit show, everybody on Twitter was typing shit show and it was just a mess. And, you know, so I think it was embarrassing for the moderator. I think there was no real upside. There was one moment, you know, I always look at these things like, what's the moment that people will talk about? And the moment was when Chris Wallace asked Donald Trump if he would in fact condemn white supremacists. And there was a pause. And, and you know, everybody here knows, you get that pause. And you're like, oh, there's a moment coming. You got some quiet, there's a pause. Biden stops too, he's not talking. And, uh, and he can't remember the questions. We need to go back to Chris Wallace to ask him again. You're like, give me the, yes, give me the, you know, whatever. And he couldn't do it. And he says, the Proud Boys, and then he says, stand by. And that's it. And the moderator, and it all just moves on. He starts going into Antifa, and somebody has to be managing this. And he couldn't do it. I mean, that to me was the big moment in the debate. Everything else was literally just two monkeys, you know, fighting in a cage, and nothing could come out. Uh, and it was just very, very messy and loud and unhelpful, I thought. Well, it felt to me like the real, like the real grandpas of DC, like it really <laughs> felt like a reality show. And to that end, Wes and um, Keith now have a cocktail. So Wes, your thoughts? Well, you know, was, I'm wearing my, my Ohio gear, because this, uh, this debate was in my hometown of Cleveland and all oh, that was, that was miserable. It was miserable for a lot of reasons. I, I think that, you know, to echo what Soledad said, and, I, and I'd love to get into, I know we have to talk about kind of some of the issues that were debated, some of the answers, that type of stuff. I would like to have some conversation as well about this format and the structure in general, right? Because I think that what's true with the president, whether you love him or hate him or whatnot, right? he's obviously like a deeply unconventional candidate. Very few other, Sarah Palin, when she debated, didn't behave that way, right? That no, that no one else in our politics behaves that way. Um, and so sometimes it's easy to think that the reason these things don't work or are so broken down is because of him only because of him. But I think sometimes he does expose flaws in the way that we operate, right? That's all that I was saying. These 
debates very often aren't debates, right? Um, in part because either the candidates are interrupting each other because they have no time or uh, they don't have a chance to respond to each other sometimes. We see this in the primary debates all the time. There are 17 people and they go, climate change, 30 seconds, go. And you're like, how would you ever, <laughs> like that doesn't make any sense. Like, and so, I, you know, for me, I've always had this stance that like, I think the debates are kind of like television events. I don't actually think very often if the purpose is to serve the public and to probe the candidates, I don't think they achieve their desired end. And so perhaps, you know, a lot of our friends in the media now might <laughs> be more willing to, to dabble with structure because of the way this has gone. But this, I mean, tonight was just, it was miserable. You know, it was miserable for a lot of different reasons. I think that one of them was that, you know, the president, almost everything he said was a clear and obvious play to purely his base. And I don't even mean that in the way a lot of people say, it, but I mean that in that he his talking points, the things he used were basically all Breitbart headlines that your average person doesn't even know what these are references to very often, right? The hyper specifics of Hunter Biden and Ukraine and a, a viral comment taken out of context from Joe Biden about the truth. It's, it's things that even followers of politics are like, wait, what, what? what, what is this even about? What are we talking about? Um, and those aren't things that convert anyone, right? Because they don't know what you're talking about. You know, I thought that I'm not surprised by this as a strategy. One, because we saw how he behaved with Hillary Clinton four years ago, um, how he behaved in his primary debates four years ago. And also because if one of the chief arguments that the Trump campaign is making is that Joe Biden is um, not all there cognitively. I mean, we saw this in the run-up to, to this conversation. You had a lot of these Republican surrogates, Rudy Giuliani, just kind of throwing wild, you know, speculation about uh, Biden's health. And we also know that Biden has a stutter that shows up in his public speaking. I do think a lot of this was about trying to get him flustered. Like for a lot of us, when someone starts running at you saying all types of crazy stuff, we, you know, you kind of slow down, you clam up, you start. The, and so I thought that was a strategy of his. I don't know how well that came across, but what I also say is I don't know how many undecided voters there are in existence, right? That these are two obviously very different people representing two very obviously different parties. And I can't imagine, you know, I, I don't know very many people who are making a choice between the two. Mm -hmm. Right. Keith? I'm going to sigh and I'm going to take a sip before I answer. Sip of the Why does everybody have drinks but me? Like, I didn't get it. No one gave you so, somebody, a Somebody should give you the memo. I know when he's drinking. You have a cocktail. Wes literally has a jug of something. We, what is we it? drink My, on this show. It's a, it's a whiskey lemonade. Whiskey, uh, but it's like it's right here. ounces of whiskey lemonade. It's, it's not it's just. More, it's more lemonade than whiskey because I got to write tonight, too. Uh, but okay. I need something to take the edge off after all that. Uh, but I'll just sit here with no cocktail. Carry on. <laughs> so, so, sorry about that. Next time around, I got you. But, um, yeah, bartender, sit somewhere that a drink. Here's the thing, right? I decided at some point watching that debate that this was going to be a very difficult show for me to get through without without engaging or trying to engage comedically, right? Because that was nothing that you could take serious by way of democratic process whatsoever. I mean, it wasn't informative at all. Uh, it could it 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 had absolutely positively no chance of giving you insight into either candidates. Um, either candidates, uh, 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 policy positions, 
had absolutely positively no no opportunity to really even give you too much insight into their disposition. And what I mean by that is, I mean, we, we already know Trump's a, Trump's a bully and a demagogue and, and, you know, just, just sort of, just his, his entire strategy is to debase and to bring any conversation down to the lowest possible intellectual level that, it, that, that he can. Um, we already know that, right? Um, and we already know that Joe Biden is a, is a you know, he's an old, he's an old guy from Scranton, right? With a, with a little bit of an outdated demeanor to him um, and kind of a, you know, all shucksness about him. Um, nothing else, not, not, none of that was going to change, right? One of the things that, that struck me about, and, and I'll, I'll say this, I have more critiques for Joe Biden's performance than I did for Donald Trump's. And the reason I have more, more critique for Biden's performance than I did for Trump's is we already knew what to expect from Donald Trump in a debate. Like, again, we, can't, we know who that guy is. Biden had an opportunity to further define himself as, a, as not only the polar opposite of Donald Trump, but somebody who wasn't afraid of the bully. Somebody who would, who would stand up. And during the debate, I actually tweeted at some, at, at some point, Joe Biden left a whole lot of cash money on the table. And I, and I think he did, right? I think he left a whole lot of cash money on, on the table, right? Um, at one point, Donald Trump brought up, the, in the first question, when he talked about uh, the Supreme Court nominee, Donald Trump talked about, you know, having the opportunity to, to nominate somebody because he won the election. And Joe Biden was a sitting vice president when the Republican controlled Senate stole that opportunity away, literally stole that opportunity away from Barack Obama, who at that point had nine months left in his term and wouldn't hold a hearing. And Joe Biden never mentioned Mitch McConnell. He never mentioned the Senate. He never, he never brought that up. Um, so he had tons of opportunity to point out very pointedly to stand up to the bully. And I think he, he tried to do it in his own way. Um, but I don't think he ever, he ever really landed a solid punch. Right. Now I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a nascent amateur boxer. Right. I, I get ring and, and kind of get, uh, and get beat up a few times a week. Right. And there's something about being in a ring with somebody who is not artful at all about pugilism, but they land more punches than you and the punches still hurt. And you can be as sophisticated a pugilist as you want to be. If you don't land any solid counter punches, you still lose. And I just think that Joe Biden left too much on the table. Uh, if that were a prize fight, I think he might've lost on the cards. But I think the question is, what is the purpose of these debates, right? And so if we're talking about, you know, appealing to undecided voters, which I've always been baffled by who could possibly be undecided at this point in the race, in any race, next week is October. So at this point, in any race, you know the candidates pretty well. In this particular race, Joe Biden has been 
in the public eye and public office for almost 50 years. We've seen three years of this president. So it, that's a whole separate conversation is who at this point is undecided and what would convince them. But the question is, when you're asking who won, you really have to go to what is the purpose of the debates. And either it's to convince the undecided or to Soledad's point, it's strictly entertainment. So it seems like a very difficult question to answer. Then you have to pair that with the fact that this is such an unconventional contest. So when you're talking about debating Donald Trump, you can't apply the same criteria that you would apply with any other race. Because here you have someone who answers the questions that he wants to answer, not the questions that were asked, who bullies his opponent constantly through interruption, and who lies as easily as he breathes. So it's very difficult to identify a winner and a loser in this context. Um, Soledad, do you have Chris any thoughts? Chris was the loser. Chris Wallace was the loser. He was. And I like, usually, I think, um, I'm not a big fan of Fox News, but I gen generally like his interview style. I find him sort of very consistent and and a tough interviewer. And in this, he was just in over his head from the get-go and flailing. So there was a loser and the loser was neither candidate, but it was the moderator. And I think that he, uh, a good example, uh, obviously, um, when the, he didn't press the president on, uh, you know, committing to what he asked him to do, commit that you will stand up against white supremacists, the president fails to do it. And he doesn't take the moment to say, so you will not do it. He just says, let's move on. Or for example, um, you know, he just couldn't manage the process at all, or he couldn't, uh, when he asked the president about his taxes, right? Which was kind of an interesting chunk. It's been in the news, obviously, a lot. Um, and the president said, oh, millions and millions of dollars, right? A very Trumpian answer, which is not really centered on a number or a specific thing, right? Any good interviewer would say, okay, well, let's take 2016, how, how many millions, literally? How many? And, and is it is it like 2 million, 10 million, 50 million, 120 million? Like, well, give me a range of what we're talking about. Right? That's how you start getting people and how you figure out if people are, are lying or not, right? And, and so there was no follow-up. And also he asked two questions in every question, right? He says, I'm gonna ask you this and also this. And we all know, anybody who's done journalism for more than eight seconds knows, you never, ever, ever ask the double question because it doesn't, it doesn't hone your interview and send it a direction where people are forced to give you a thoughtful answer. So I think in, in every which way, the moderator really, really struggled. The format was bad for an unconventional candidate, uh, but everybody knew that Donald Trump was an unconventional candidate. It was news to nobody. And they really should have thought about that and figured out how do we actually navigate this with a person who is going to just kind of ramble and talk over people. There are ways to do it. It seemed like they didn't really prepare for that. So I think he just lost. And I think it was kind of a draw between the two of them. I don't know that I learned anything. I don't know that, that anybody came away damaged or more weakened. I think the people who like Biden continue to like Biden. The people who like Trump continue to like Trump. And never really learned a thing about anything at all. Well, you know, one of the things that occurs to me, or I, I, I'm thinking about, as we think about how you would moderate a debate with someone like President Trump, right? Knowing what he is, knowing how he is, and also knowing some of the things he said in the run-up, right? One of the questions I'm still, like, I'm kind of thinking out loud here, right? But one of the sections that really I found disturbing in the debate was this section where Chris Wallace teed the president up to undermine the legitimacy of the election, right? We know the president has been saying all types of things about mail-in ballots. To be clear, 
There are some fair concerns about the idea that this is a very different election. We have a pandemic, there are way more people voting by mail that does create the possibility of, of more chaos we might not know immediately. All of that's real, right? This is an unprecedented year with COVID. And also we know the president has been kind of wildly suggesting that any, you know, any result that's not in his favor, it's because of fraud, it's because of secret people stealing and harvesting ballots, right? You know, presidential debate, you have millions, you know, and, if, <laughs> and you hope tens of millions of people watching, right? The hope is that they are impressionable people who are making up their minds and learning things and engaging, right? And I almost wonder, you know, in a world where no one's ever asked me to moderate debate, and I don't think they ever will, but in a world where that happened, I, I'm trying to think about if I would even ask that question, right? It's one, it's one of the big things about journalism in the Trump era, right, is when you have someone who operates so far outside of the rules, at what point do you become complicit in the game that they are playing, right? Is it responsible if you know that someone is going to spin a conspiracy theory, or say things that are blatantly false that might undermine people's faith in democracy, do you tee the president, do you even ask that question? Do you risk him doing what he did and now someone in Ohio is going, well, maybe the results won't be valid. I mean, the president of the United States in this election said explicitly that there was going to be fraud in, in the election and that if he lost, it was because they cheated. If that happened in another country we were covering, we would call into question the entire democratic system. If the sitting, pre if the sitting president said the only way I'm going to lose is if they cheat and it's because of a fraud and it, that would be, you know, it's a cliche at this point, but it's like how we would cover this if it was some third world black country or brown country, right? The words and the language we would use, right? And we would say the autocratic leader of the United States of America today suggested that, that the only way he loses is if his political opponents steal the election from him, a baseless claim. That, you know, and so I do kind of wonder like what we even do with, because I agree obviously that talking about the election and ballot security and people's concerns are legitimate things. But in front of millions of people, do you provide someone a platform to do that, even if they're the president? The question I'm dying for someone to ask him is, is it still a fraud and a sham if you win decisively? Then what? You know, if on election night it's a sweep and you are the undisputed winner, is it still a fraud and a sham then? Because I'm really curious as to what his answer would be. He is preparing for a loss and he has said, he thinks Joe Biden is the worst candidate ever. And if I lose, I'll never speak to any of you again. So he's basically bolstering his ego for that night to be able to say, well, it was a fraud. It was a sham anyway, just like he does with, with everything else. Well, we, um, go I, think, I think we already know the answer to that, right? I mean, here's a guy who lost a popular vote the last time around by more than three plus million votes and says that he, had, that he won the most decisive victory in electoral and presidential electoral politics. So we already know what the answer to that is. Like if you won by, if you won more bigly than anybody else has ever, has ever won when you actually lost the popular vote than when, if you were to actually win the popular vote, then we know what the situation is, is going to be, right? Like Trump's presidency on some level is predicated on undermining and throwing all of our accepted norms and democratic processes, democratic with the, with the small d processes off center, right? So to, so Undermining confidence in, in elections is one thing. Undermining confidence in journalists is another thing. Wes, you wrote a good op-ed not that long ago about 
where we are in terms of objectivity in newsrooms when truth <laughs> has been when 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 you know when official Washington has a spokesperson on you know on on a morning show saying there there are, there's a such thing as alternative facts right so Soledad to your point when you talk about the moderator losing the day I don't know how possible it was for for Wallace to to have won in in, in any context because here's here's the thing a lot of us as journalists still think in terms of that old school you know you've got to you've got to have point and counterpoint you've got to have balance but there is no balance when one person is lying all the time right like you can't have there can't be balance at some point you've got to you've got to say this guy's a liar but in but in in, in a debate format where you've got one candidate versus the other candidate right and you know you if you put yourself in the position of calling out the obvious lie of this candidate, then you ought to, then, then you're, then you're aware that you are perceived or you could be perceived as tipping the scale in favor of the other candidate. When the reality is there's no way for you to actually be truly objective and to be truly balanced. If you're doing your job as a journalist, which primarily is to call out the lie. How do you do that? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know that you have to call it the lie. I mean, it would be nice, but I do think real time fact checking is very problematic. But I, I think the questions when they're very broad don't serve to give you the answer, right? A very good follow up would have been. So if you win, is it a fraud? Right. And then it would have stopped in a moment, right? Because that would have actually thrown the president. And the way you have to think about interviewing him is to give him those questions that make him stop that he can't just run through. And these questions are so broad and so wide and you can take them anywhere you want. Well, that's going to be problematic for a thoughtful pinned down interview. If you think, what, why would you, you voted by mail many times. So why is it fraud now? Right. I mean, like, that's not a bad question and it's simple and it's not a, I'm a moderator and here I am taking up space question, but it's actually like a decent, you know, I often thought people should ask the president very basic things, you know, yeah. who, who runs this country? How does such and such work? I mean, very, very basic. I think he would really struggle in answering those things. Um, yeah. You know, and he just he just has no idea how to think. He's not smart and he has no idea how to think about them. And so I, I think sometimes journalists get into these. Um, they, they, I think Chris Wallace lost, uh, not because he just couldn't manage them. And that's a challenging way to manage it. But because the format didn't serve him, because his questions were poorly formatted and phrased and he didn't do in the first 10 minutes which he could have done he could have said if you talk over each other i'm going to have the audio guys cut off your mics i'm only going to give you this one warning if you do it you will be cut off we will not interrupt each other on my moderation in my debate do you understand and then you go the first person who does it you cut them off I told you you'd be cut off. And it really, I've done that a couple of times to people on the air. It works really well because it's very embarrassing to be moving your mouth and no one can hear you. It gets very awkward. So, you know, you only have, it's like dealing with toddlers. You only have to do it once. And, and well, we could have done this too and requested back control. He knew it was going to be a shit show, right? These things, you knew it was going to be a shit show and he just didn't really prepare for that. So I think there are more things he could have done than just, hey, anybody in that position would have really struggled. Yeah, but when know, you... What, or go ahead, Mara. Sorry, I just, you know, you struck a nerve because when you were talking about cutting off the mic, I was thinking that is a total mom move. And like, I'm with you 110%. And I have noticed, you know who handles the president better than anybody? 
Nancy Pelosi. And I can see the mom coming out of her when she is talking about him. It's because she is accustomed to dealing with toddlers. So, you, I mean, we say it almost as a joke, but it's not. When you're used to communicating with people on such a base level, that is what gets through to the president. Well, the funny thing is that it was, the, the only point in, in the debate where Chris Wallace really challenged him and told, and, and told the president, listen, you've got to stop talking over Joe Biden. And he kind of raised his voice and said it with his chest a little bit. Trump's res immediate response was, but he does it too. And it was, it was, and it was like he went, he, come, he totally became the five-year-old. He, he does it too. No, but you've done it more. And it's just like, what are we, what? this is a debate. It's not, you know, 10-year-old siblings. To run, to be yes. the leader of the free world, right? This is a debate to be the leader of the free world. And it's like, but he did it first, mom. Yeah, but he does it. Are you going to yell at him? He does it too. It was, it was so embarrassing in every level. It really was. Well, you know, to build on some things that Soledad said, I keep, I have this quote from Chris Wallace stuck in my head from before the debate where he was saying he wanted to be an invisible moderator, right? He did, he did this well, interview about, <laughs> right? Where, where, where he, he wasn't going to, he, he didn't want to take center stage. He wasn't going to do live fact checking, which I agree can be strange and complicated, right? You don't want to get all the way in the weeds into it because then if you misstate the fact check, it becomes a whole thing, everyone's mad at you. I get that. But I do think that going back to the way that this worked in general, I, I think there was a distinct lack of follow-up questions in a way that really didn't serve this debate. You know, we mentioned a few different examples of this, on, on the taxes, on the, and I think that, that if you're gonna have a setup where you're gonna throw out three questions stacked on top of each other, and then give people essentially five straight minutes of just going back and forth, you're gonna lose the direction of the debate, right? And so what we saw was that theoretically, this is gonna have specific topics, stuff was all over the place, right? We're talking about the Supreme Court in the economy section, we're talking about, right? Like nothing quite fit. And I, and I do think that that is in a lot of ways a distinct failure, right? And I think that that is the way sometimes when you deal with an interview, I've never interviewed this president, but I've interviewed politicians who can be, and, and figures who are similar in that I know what they're saying to me is not true, or they're peddling a specific party line, but they don't want to get at the core. And one of the ways you do that is that you drill into them with the follow-up questions. You make them define that. So, so, pres so president, you cut off, and again, in some of these cases, you know, I always watch the, the race and criminal justice stuff closely because I have some expertise in that space, right? And I'm constantly frustrated by ways that questions are framed there. And because very often the journalists themselves don't actually have expertise on the thing, so they don't know what they're talking about, right? And President of the United States cuts off uh, funding for racial sensitivity training and any critical race theory, right? I would love for someone to ask President Trump how he defines critical race theory, what he, what he believes that means. Uh, I, I would love to, you know, and, and so there are all these different points in time where the president says something and you can say, well, what is that? How does that work? But you have to be a present moderator for that, right? Otherwise, it's just the president throwing out a million different things. You know, I brought up the example earlier where Joe Biden brings up the comments reported in the Atlantic and later confirmed elsewhere about the president and the military. And the president responds by saying, well, you called the military stupid bastards. We have that on tape. He keeps repeating, stupid bastards, stupid bastards. Well, I might try, and Joe Biden goes, that's a lie, that's not true, go watch the video. If you're trying to inform your audience 
who might not have known what this was. I didn't know what it was. I looked it up, right? Uh, if you're trying to inform these millions of people what this conversation is, you turn to Joe Biden and go, so what was that? Like, what are we talking about? The answer to that question is Joe Biden was talking to the troops. He was doing a very Joe Biden-esque speech uh, with an air woman he brought up onto stage. He was praising her. It was an applause line and they didn't catch it. He goes, clap, you stupid bastards, come on. And everyone's laughing. And, you know, it was like purely and obviously a joke at the end of a very long speech about how great the military is and how much he loved him, right? There's a, sometimes you've got to let, you know, if you have candidates who are claiming the other person is lying about them about something, You've got to say, hey, so why isn't that true? What does that mean? Let's address these things, right? And I think that, that um, again, you can't do that if you've decided before the debate has even begun what your role is going to be. Sometimes, we all know this in interviews. Sometimes you got to play it by ear. Sometimes you, you go in and you might think, well, this is going to be non-confrontational. It gets crazy real quick. And so you got to jump in. Other times the person just talks for the two hours straight and you're like, this is great. And, and I think there was some failure there. Not that this is an enviable position given the president. But I, I also thought uh, Chris Wallace, who's typically a very good interviewer, uh, could have done a lot better. Yeah, anytime you're screaming at your guests, wait, the economy section is coming up next. Like, that's a fail. There's just, that's the definition of, and that happened multiple times, right? No, don't, don't say that because that goes in this section. It felt very old. It felt very we see dated. debates all the time, right? Where it's like, no, 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 we'll get to that soon. Or we'll, and it's like, again, if the point of, we know this is a conversation, right? If Mara was going, well, we'll get to the moderator <laughs> section of this later, to, it wouldn't work. The conversations are conversations. They pop around, we all talk, we figure it out, we go with the flow. And I would love a world where we get the two people who wanna lead the free world having an intelligent conversation that might bounce from topic to topic because we know all these topics are interconnected. You can't talk about climate without talking about the economy. You can't talk about the Supreme Court without talking about healthcare. And, and I think trying to segregate those things gets really frustrating. And also, frankly, you've got a lot of viewers out there who are waiting for a specific thing or they, wanna, or they want to see how these conversations intersect, right? And so why are all the questions that are ostensibly about race in a one little sec section? Well, I, I'm pretty sure black people care about the Supreme Court. I'm pretty sure that the economy and COVID uh, have, you know, have repercussions as it relates to race, right? And so you know, climate change in the economy. And so the way we structure these things in the media very often, I think underserves the conversation. But you would think if anybody would do that, would kind of jump in and go with the flow and be really well prepared and to have all the questions and the statistics and the information right at hand to be able to go with the flow, you would think it would be Chris Wallace, who, you know, as I agree with Soledad on this, who is generally really exceptional. And he was exceptional very recently in interviewing the president. And it was clear that he had done his homework. It was clear he had looked at game footage. It was clear he was prepared in a way that sadly few are. So it was a little bit surprising to see him not handle it this way. And I think what you guys are saying is correct. He was locked into these boxes of we're gonna talk about these topics and we're gonna talk about them in this order. And so if you stray off topic, you should wait until we get to it. And what I thought was interesting is that Joe Biden actually managed to make a thread through everything with COVID because this is a historic time. It's a historic election. This is a historic debate. And I thought he did a very good job of using COVID as the thread for everything, for the economy, for racial disparities, for the Affordable Care Act, for every single component, he brought COVID back to the forefront. 
And I thought that was a, that was a smart device um, strategically because it did allow him to basically talk about what he wanted to talk about, regardless of, of what section it was in. Um, Wes, you mentioned the race part, and that really, really, really triggered me because, you know, there was something that he said, I, I made a note of it. The president said, we're teaching people our country is a racist place. It's also a loving, wonderful, beautiful place, but it is also, in a lot of cases, very racist. You know, I think a lot about a trip I took home to Cleveland actually a few years ago, and I was talking to some guys I'd grown up with. And this was probably back during the Democratic primary. Um, these are all democratically inclined, but kind of white ethnic cops and firefighters types, right? Um, and so, and, and I remember at one point, one guy said to me in this conversation, and we're talking this in the context of the Democratic candidates, but he said, you know, for me, so much of this, and this was, I thought, actually pretty introspective for a relatively average voter to say, you know, because in so much of this, you know, I'm listening for the person who paints the picture of America I want to believe to be true. And, and I think that, and I think about that framing a lot, right, especially when we see the Republican conservative backlash to what have been these racial reckoning, the Black Lives Matter movement, conversations even about Me Too and other things, right, that their response is, no, 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 no. This is not true. It cannot be true. You're, you're essentially an enemy of the country if you say these bad things about us, right? And I do think in the most, in the most charitable or earnest framing of that, right? Because I think there are political reasons for that. I think there might be interpersonal reasons for some of them. There is a sense that I do think for a lot of white Americans, it's remarkably triggering for them to think that wait, there's racism everywhere? No, that just can't be true. You just must hate America. In the same way, frankly, that for a lot of men, there was the kind of backlash to me and say, we're all creeps. No, I don't know about that. You guys just must be making that up, right? Like, you know, and, I, and I think that there's a, I, I think that there can be, um, you know, people want to believe and are invested emotionally and psychologically into certain things about who they are, what their community is, what their country is, right? And when people say things that challenge that, right? Because what we see in a diversifying country and a more globalized world is that we are forced to encounter other people's experiences in ways we might not have been previously, right? That insert Republican talking head is getting a trans black woman retweeted into his timeline and he's suddenly confronting these anecdotes and things that he's never even entertained, right? And vice versa in any number of ways, right? And I think that that is obviously and functionally uncomfortable. As journalists, we're used to that. A big part of our job is, is to seek out other people's stories. And so I think we have a baseline understanding that we don't know everything about the world. We don't know everything about the country. Other people have different experiences. But I think for a lot of Americans, especially on issues of race, the last 10 years from the election of Barack Obama uh, through the Obama administration into the Trump administration, now three years in, it has forced them to be confronted with, with visceral images, video, public conversation, the emergence of a lot of black media figures and, and cultural discussion. And their choices are either to say, perhaps the world isn't the way I imagined it before, other people have different experiences, or to say, they're making it up, this isn't true. And, and so when he says stuff like that, going back to what I was saying earlier, a lot of that I think is, is foundationally and fundamentally a play to his base, the people who share his racial politics. And I think a lot of, I actually think like a lot of white Americans are, you know, do start to feel a fatigue. Well, I don't want to believe we're all race. You know, there's a, it's, an, it's almost an optimism versus pessimism type framing around race. Obviously, 
this is a country that is clearly and obviously, you know, founded in a, a, a system of white supremacy, right? We know this, it's not up for debate. Um, it's a country that was an apartheid state for the first 350 years of its, of its existence, right? The black Americans only had the full unencumbered access to the ballot box for the last 60 or 70 so years. And, and I think that there's a, you know, and I, and I think that, um, but, but I think that for a lot of folks, there's a reason they want the past to be in the past and they want to think that this is different. And I think Trump has always attempted to appeal to those people. Um, he's always tried to appeal to the flag waving, country music, eagles everywhere, military, you know, again, appeal to a specific type of patriotism that says we are great and we are amazing and we don't have to talk about any of that other stuff we did. Which is why Chris Wallace failed, right? Because imagine if his question had not been, so now race and violence, so now and framed in these very weird boxes that were actually so indicative of someone who's not spent 10 seconds covering race and probably race and violence either. Um, I think that's the area where you could say, President Trump, lay out your vision for what good race relations look like in America. Right, like a very basic question. And, and that would have given you such an insight, right? Because you said it first, who's the person whose vision is the vision that I want to agree with, right? And I think that that was really what was missing as opposed to race and violence is shoving everybody into this this funnel of specifically in the mayor of this town. And people, I don't think in America think in terms of that. I think it's like big picture. You know, is it gonna be a chicken in every pot? Is it gonna be, you know, this is how we feel about our neighbors. What is it gonna be? What is your vision? And I thought that was the one area where he really could have done a better job thinking about and framing those questions. And I think again, it was just a mess. It was just a very messy, it was a messy mess. A messy mess. <laughs> Keith? So, so in order to be able to, to ask those questions, right, you have to have had some exposure to that. And this goes back to what I said at the very end of the, last, of, of the first episode, which was like, I, I made a joke about it, but it was real. Believe Black women, right? You've got to have people who, everybody on that stage was, was a white guy of a certain age. The moderator was, and the two candidates were. We can't do anything about the two candidates. Those candidates are, are who the parties chose to represent them, right? But at some point, you've got to have, then have a moderator who's able to engage on some of these top topics on a level that suggests they've invested some time, and some thought beyond what's on the page in front of them, beyond their notes, beyond their talking points, beyond whatever debate prep they, they had. So... If you wanna see Chris Wallace or, or whoever's moderating the next debate, ask a pointed question to the President of the United States about what critical race theory means, right? Then you need to have someone who's ever engaged with critical race theory on some level beyond however long, however many hours it took them to prepare for this debate or to read that question. Now, I have, Pick, have no bones picked with Chris Wallace's journalist, absolutely not. Um, but we all, no matter how great we are, have blind spots. And there are some things, and I think that that was a clear blind spot, right? It's difficult to have a conversation about race. We're seeing this, this reckoning now in American newsrooms 
that we also saw happen back in 1968. American newsrooms were largely segregated and the black press was, was on some level thriving because American newsrooms were segregated, right? And so you had your Ebony's, your Jets, you had the Pittsburgh Courier, which is the first newspaper I, I, I ever wrote for. You had the uh, Chicago Defender and on and on and on. Uh, the Afro in Baltimore and Washington, D.C. And those papers had a specific significance up until 1968, up until about the 1970s. And their decline started after the country went through a period of significant turmoil through the 1960s. And the reason, why, the reason that started to change was because mainstream outlets realized we don't have anybody who can talk about this stuff in the newsroom. We don't have anybody who's educated enough to be able to go and go into Watts or Southside Chicago or Southeast DC or anywhere else and ask a question that's educated and that suggests that that that, that person can relate whatsoever to the experience of an African American who may or may not be inclined to protest, may or may not be in grief and in grieving over political assassination, et cetera. And we're going through that again. This is happening again right now. We have racial turmoil on the spilling out, out onto the streets. And what do each and every one of us here know about being in a, in a mainstream American newsroom, given the outlets that we've all worked for? We know that we don't have parity in those newsrooms. We know that we, don't, that we haven't, by and large, achieved uh, any sort of critical mass in, term, in terms of our stature, either reaching the level of an executive producer or an executive editor or the editor-in-chief and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like we don't hold those positions. And even in the pipeline toward those positions, by and large, we, there aren't that many of us in these large newsrooms. So when you get to who hosts the debate, when you get to who gets to ask the president questions, when you get to who gets to challenge power when it comes to things like sexual assault, when it comes to uh, any intersectional uh, uh, issue in, in, in American politics or culture, when it comes to race, we largely have people asking those questions who aren't prepared to do it. Well, we do have on the 22nd, Kristen Welker, and I, I had to look it up while you were talking because I knew she was coming up, but I couldn't remember the date. So Kristen Welker is the moderator on October 22nd. And I'm a pray for Kristen, not because she's not extremely capable. She is extremely capable. But I have noticed that the president is much more demeaning and combative and dismissive of women. And so my concern for her coming up is that if he behaved this way with Chris Wallace, who is a white man who works for Fox News, what kind of foolery are we going to see with Kristen? But, you know, that's... We don't know. He's specifically abusive of Black women who, who challenge him in, in, in the press room. He's specifically, and I believe intentionally, abusive of people like Yamisha Sender. He's specifically abusive of... of Black women, women broadly, but black women in particular, when they when they challenge him, I think he believes and he knows very well, and it plays into what he did during the debate, the debate tonight when he was asked to renounce white supremacy. He knows who his base is, and there is a certain, I believe, not insignificant portion of his base who are okay with the racism. They just are, and I think that he that because he knows that, and because he knows it works for him at least with his base. He has made a calculation 
that if I am abusive to a black woman, it's a it's a particular type of virtue signaling. And and he will do that. And and unfortunately, do you think it does? Yes. Right. We know. We know. Yeah. We know that it actually does chip away just the nastiness generally, right? What we, we, we're not often when they interview suburban women feel like it's just so unpleasant. And, and I think that's one of the reasons you see his numbers and his support among suburban women actually has fallen because they don't like the stuff that they would tell their six-year-old not to do and say, right? It gets, what you pointed out earlier about where everybody turned into a five-year-old and was like, but he does it. You know, every mom was like, oh God, I'm so triggered. I'm like reliving my twins being five because that was our, our daily. So I don't, he might do it, but I don't think it plays well. I, I do think there's a portion of the audience that's like, yeah, go get her. And then there's a bunch of other people who say, this is not presidential. It's inappropriate. It's uncomfortable. It's misogynistic. Mm -hmm. And I don't like it. You know, to get back to something Keith said earlier about kind of the integration of major American musicals, and I want to, I don't want to, it's not push back, we agree, but I want to even complicate some of that historical narrative a little bit, right? Because I think it's almost too charitable to suggest that in a lot of these newsrooms in the late 60s, the reasons they wanted black reporters was because they didn't have anyone who could talk to black people. Rather, it was that the white reporters were scared to go to Watts because they thought they were gonna get killed, right? The LA Times just did a retrospective on its history. Um, and and in, in one of the pieces, uh, or there are two, two different pieces that I thought were powerful. One of the pieces was from a reporter who is still there, who's now the longest tenured Black reporter at the LA Times. There are not very many Black reporters at the LA Times. I spent a little time there. I know a lot of people there. And he recalls how during the riots, this would have been, this was Watts, this was uh, post Rodney King um, and, and the um, acquittal of the officers, that all of the Black reporters who had been given these junior reporter positions out in all the suburban bureaus, they all got called downtown. Because again, the white reporters were explicitly afraid to go out into these neighborhoods. They all thought they'd get beat up. And, and so they and so they were all, for a lot of them, this was their chance, right? They, they get to be on the big story. Um, they're in the main newsroom, working with editors who previously they didn't have, have access to. And, and it's heartbreaking. This reporter tells a story about how he's been doing good work. He's been on the front page. He's been on the big stories. And he's thinking, all right, this, this might be my ticket. I finally got a chance to prove myself. And, you know, maybe they'll move me over here full time. And one day, his white editor walks over, taps him on the shoulder and goes, all right, back to the bureau tomorrow and turns and walks away. And he writes about how, it, how demoralizing it was for him, that his work hadn't been noticed. He had clearly just been this pawn for them to achieve a certain thing. And, that it, and, and I think that that is as crucially important in what questions we end up asking when it trickles up into a debate stage, into these big presidential conversations, is that you know, very often media does want a black face. They, they want representative diversity in a broad sense, right? But we all know that there's, it's very different that when you've got the handcuffs on and when you've got the handcuffs off, right? It, it's different if they say, all right, you can moderate this debate, but the four white executives are writing your questions, or we expect it to be X, Y, and Z, or please don't get in a fight with the president, or versus a world where they say, 
So then do whatever you want. This is your debate, right? And, and I do think that there is, and so I think that's part of it as well, right? Is the sense of how questions are asked, the framing and understanding of these issues, not just, and now our black correspondent will pop up for the black people question and they're in the audience somewhere and they're like, <laughs> versus a world where you actually get to have a deep and nuanced conversation where you can push back, where you can ask these type of questions and build to something. Cause there also is, there's a remarkable pressure especially on something like race, right? To fit it into a box. And it doesn't even, it just doesn't work like that. That's not how race manifests in the country and the world in the first place. And so when you've already decided you're, we're holding it to three questions, then you're stacking the deck with a moderator who doesn't have experience or expertise in that space, or even if they do, very often are constricting them to how they interact with it. It's not a setup for an intelligent conversation. It's not a setup for a conversation where you actually penetrate talking points and, and get to any anything that's actually enlightening in any way. So as we wrap it up, um, you know, political analysts going into this said that you know tonight the Trump campaign had to change the dynamic. That they needed some momentum. They needed to convince undecided voters. Did tonight change anything? No, absolutely not. But it, but it was never going to change anything, right? Like, I'm a, I'm a staunch believer that in this era of politics, there's no such thing as an undecided voter. There's a certain amount of the elected that just doesn't, doesn't want us to know what they really think, right? Like, there are some people out there who, who just, for whatever reason, are straight-up Trump supporters are, and, and yet are uncomfortable to Soledad's point about what the, you know, the good suburb, their good suburban neighbors might think of that. And so when they're asked the question... And Quinnipiac calls, they don't necessarily tell the truth or they say they're undecided. I don't know who in this country at this point is going, mm, you know, that other guy's got some, like, who are those people? Right. I, <laughs> who are those people? Who are they? Well, um, Wes's drink is finished. So his 16 ounces of whiskey is done. So I think that's our cue. My Red Bull is almost empty and I um, have some work to do on, on getting this to, to be. Actually, um, so thank you so much you for being here. Now, you have become a de facto media critic. You're very popular on Twitter for your um, critique of, of journalists. How did we do today? How, how is Run Till This doing so far? I love Run Tell This. I think it's good. But I think that the takeaway, what makes something good is, is it an intelligent conversation? And to quote Wesley Lowry, right? The debate was not an intelligent, comp not set a setup for an intelligent conversation. So I think anybody can be great at media if it's a setup for an intelligent conversation. And you will suck and you will fail if it's not a setup for an intelligent conversation. It's, it's as simple as that. So good job so far. What's this show number two? This is show number two. Number two. All right. Been great job so far. Thanks. Set up for an intelligent conversation. And I don't just say that because I'm in here with you and my friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, your seal of approval means a lot. Thank you so much for being here. We really do appreciate it. All right. Have a good one. The conversation continues on social media. So please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at runtellthis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Run Tell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.